You know, our innate problem with authority, you know, submission to authority, there's three of our favorite words, right? Our, our innate problem with that is really easy to see in others. <laughs> it's really easy for the husband to see in his wife a lack of submission to him as her husband. And then 10 minutes later, argue with the cop over the definition of a complete stop. It's easy for a parent to get exasperated with that strong-willed child until they remembered I was once that strong-willed child. We look out into our society, and many of us would say the problem with our society is a, is a problem with submission to authority, right? I mean, we look all over our culture, and it just it's rampant. It's everywhere. It's epidemic, and it's so easy to see it in culture, but not so easy to see it in the mirror, I mean, after all, who wants to be told what to do, when to do it, and how to do it? Not many people are raising their hand to that. Not many people are lining up to want to be under someone else's authority. Submission is a problem in every human heart. So God comes to us in Christ, in the gospel, to assert his authority and to secure our submission. And once it's secured, it's a sweet submission. It's a sweet surrender. When we finally lay down our arms, when we finally wave the white flag and we we dethrone ourselves by repentance and enthrone Christ by faith. Beloved, that is not something to be afraid of. That's that's what we were made for. It's something to delight in. But you don't know that this side of conversion. I'm convinced in my heart of hearts that. The gospel and Christ are here to assert God's authority in our life and to secure our submission. The Bible stresses certainly this theme. There is a God and you are not him. (laughs) Right. And I am not him. Matthew refers to Jesus as Lord 80 times. Mark only does so about 17 times. Matthew refers to Jesus as Lord 80 times. He refers to you and me as Lord zero times. And as we come this morning back to Matthew 8 and 9, these two great chapters of authoritative deeds of Christ, we find here really nine stories, nine miracles that stress the authority of Christ. And these nine miracle stories are given to us in three cycles of three each. And today we've come to the second cycle of these three. Our text is Matthew 8, 23 to chapter 9 and verse 8. So if you'll go ahead and find that. Where we find these uh, three authoritative deeds of Christ to back up his words. To show that he means business. To demonstrate that he is the Messiah and the King who has come to offer his kingdom to Israel and that he has what it takes not only to make that offer, but to bring in that kingdom. My title this morning is Unlimited Authority. Unlimited Authority. Let me give you the text idea. This is a big text from 823 to 9-8. Here is the idea in a sentence in three very different settings. Jesus demonstrated his unlimited authority. 
And those settings would be the Sea of Galilee, a Gentile area, and a home in Capernaum. That brings us to the sermon idea. The text idea was the text then and there. The sermon idea is here and now. Because Jesus has unlimited authority over every area and every realm, we should completely surrender to him. That's the sermon in a nutshell. My purpose this morning is I want you to be awestruck by the unlimited authority of Jesus Christ so that you completely surrender to him. That's my goal this morning. As I've said before, every passage answers a question. The question of this passage is how? How did Jesus demonstrate his unlimited authority? Three ways. Number one, by calming the raging storm. Number two, by casting out hordes of demons. And number three, by forgiving sins. So we're going to look at three ways this morning that Jesus used to demonstrate and prove his infinite, unlimited, all-surpassing authority and power to show that he is not only the Messiah and King, but God in human flesh. So let's go through them one at a time and we'll read the passages as we go. The first one is by calming the raging storm. We pick it up in verse 18 for a moment of chapter 8 where it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Now drop down to verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep and they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here we see Christ has an authority over the created realm, right? Over nature itself. He calms here a raging, terrifying storm. Now, unlike the two would-be disciples that we saw last week that did not pass the test of comfort and the test of security. Look at verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples did what? Followed him. <laughs> they did what disciples do. Uh, this is what a disciple is. And so in contrast to the two who were left short and were left behind, who didn't get into that boat or any other boat to follow Jesus, who decided they couldn't bear with not having pillow and mattress, couldn't bear with not having the estate now, these disciples get in the boat and they follow him. They go with him. And yet in their following... They immediately face the test of comfort. These disciples are immediately tested as to their resolve in following Christ. And this is a great test. Matthew uses the words mega seismos. Mega, a great seismos, a great earthquake is what he calls this storm. A great shaking, as it were. It was as if the whole Sea of Galilee was picked up and was shaken violently. Producing huge waves. 
Some believe it was a literal earthquake causing the the waves. I'm not so sure I would go that far. I think he's using that figure of speech because this area was known for these kinds of storms that could come up suddenly. The Sea of Galilee is utterly unique. It is 600 feet below sea level. And to its east are a mountain is a mountain range. And over that range would come winds and storms suddenly, unpredictably. And they would come over those mountains and swoop down into the Sea of Galilee, promptly causing eight and nine feet waves. Now, these boats were certainly not motor boats. They weren't yachts. They weren't even as big as your as your bass boat. These were were large canoes, essentially. And these men would pile into these little boats and they would row across this sea. And so they're doing that. And, and all of a sudden, whew, here comes this turmoil and this storm. And they are about to drown. They believe that they are facing an imminent death. They are terrified. Remember, several of them are commercial fishermen. This is not some strange thing that's happening to them, but it's it's higher and it's worse than anything they've experienced. And so they think that their life is about to end. The boat is filling up with water. The waves are overwhelming them and terrifying them. And so they, they, they go to Jesus who is asleep on a cushion. Jesus perfectly calm. Jesus fully human needing to sleep. Fully trusting in God sleeping right through the storm. I'm sure it irritated them as well as ter- they were terrified. And, and so they shake him and they wake him and they and they just say, save us, Lord, we're perishing, we're dying here. And then he rebukes them. And he doesn't he doesn't rebuke them for waking him up and he doesn't rebuke them for asking for a rescue. I mean, they came to the right place with the right words, right? I mean, they're really model words for the sinner, by the way. And when you begin to see that you're under God's wrath and that and that Jesus Christ is your only hope. These are model words. Lord, save us. I'm perishing. Right. So they go to the right place. They say the right thing. Um, the problem was not any of that. The problem was how terrified they were. He rebukes them for being so scared. He, he calls them cowards. Why are you cowardly? Why are you timid? You men of little faith. They have faith. They have some faith. It's just tiny faith. It's little faith. They had forgotten whose command it was to cross over the sea. They had forgotten who is with them in the boat. And so they're terrified and that's why he rebukes them. That's the first rebuke. The second rebuke is for the storm itself. In one of the other gospels, it says that Jesus says to the storm, hush, be still. Here is God's agent of creation, controlling creation. He says to the wind and the waves, hush, be still. And and all of a sudden fell upon that sea, a, a perfect, settled calm. Now, these fishermen have seen storms come up quickly and they have seen storms pass quickly. They have seen the wind die down suddenly. We all have. We've been in storms where it's just a, a tremendous wind and then it's passing and it's, and it's just a sudden stillness. But what they haven't seen is the water go still all of a sudden, right? Once there's been activity on water, it's going to take it a while to settle down. But not this water. It's settled instantly and perfectly. This is the Lord Jesus Christ overseeing the laws of physics, calming this water uh, faster than it would have on its own. 
And then verse 27, they were amazed, they were overwhelmed, same word as those who heard his words in the Sermon on the Mount. And they say to one another, what sort of man is this? What, what, what sort, what kind, who, whose presence are we in that even the winds and the waves obey him? Underline that word obey. They submit. They recognize his authority and they do what he says to do. Let's let the word of God answer that question that those men posed. These were Jewish fishermen. They had their Old Testament. If they had been recently in the Psalms, they would have found the answer. I want to let a couple of different Psalms answer their question. We begin, if you want to go with me, to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 will have the answer of what sort of man this is. Beginning in verse 5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 89 verse 9. What sort of man is this? Yahweh in the flesh. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or how about the psalm I've read from already today? Psalm 107. Let's look at that for a moment. And verse 29. That's why I chose 107 today. Speaks of these men who go down to the sea in ships, these professional sailors who had certainly seen a storm or two in their day. And they find themselves in a storm like no other. Uh, Their boat rising and falling. They're reeling and staggering like a drunken man. They can't keep their balance. They're being tossed here and there. They're at their wit's end. They have no... Uh, ability to comprehend and, and control and, and deal with this. In verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Lord, save us. We are perishing. And he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were what? Hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. That's what sort of man this is. It's a man with all authority, even the authority over the realm of nature. Four critical lessons before we move to the next story. Four critical lessons for our lives from this miracle. Number one, you can be walking closely with Jesus and obedient to Jesus and the storm still comes. Don't miss that. Right. They followed him. He said to go to the other side of the sea. They got in the boat and they went. They're obeying Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're believing in Jesus. They have little faith. And the storm still comes. So many times we think the storm is some kind of discipline or punishment. Sometimes we might be tempted to think this is because of of sin. And And it certainly could be. That's always in the realm of possibility. But it can also be in the very much in the realm of possibility that you are walking close with Jesus, that you are obeying Jesus by his grace. And God still brings a tremendous storm into your life. That's the first lesson that we need to see here. 
The second lesson is this. He can calm any storm, any time. But remember this. A deeper encounter with Christ doesn't happen apart from the storm. He can calm any storm in your life, any trial in your life, any challenge in your life. He can take away in a moment with a word. But remember that the deep encounter with Christ doesn't happen outside of the storm. This is God's tool. This is God's instrument. You see, the one who calmed the storm is the one who sent the storm. The one who brought the storm is the one who will send it packing. Because he has greater aims in our lives than our comfort. Critical lesson number three. He can calm the storm in you. He can calm the stormy anxieties and fears that reside in your heart and your soul. But he may have to rebuke you first. He may have to rebuke us first. That's what happens here. There's two rebukes here. He's going to rebuke the storm, but that comes second. The first rebuke is for the disciples. You see, the higher priority is their faith, not their feelings, not even their lives. So he can calm our storms, but he may have to rebuke us first. Finally, number four, and this will be really part of the theme of the message today. If the inanimate wind and waves obey him, shouldn't those redeemed by his blood do so? He didn't die for winds, wind and waves. They're not made in his image. He didn't pay for their sins. If, if the wind and the way, if the sea obeys him... Matthew says, how much more so really should we who are his disciples? Let's not be outdone by creation. Let's not be outdone by that which cannot even love him the way we can. Second authoritative deed is the casting out of hordes of demons. We pick it up in verse 28. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, Two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. Uh, caves were used as tombs. The front part of these caves could be shelters for people to actually live, and then bodies would be buried on into the cave. And so these men live in these tombs. They live in the cemetery. And they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. No one had the power or the strength to even walk that path. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there were heard of many swine feeding at a distance from them, literally far away from them. The demons began to implore him or beg him saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city, reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to a meeting with Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Here we now move to his authority over the demonic realm. So we had his Authority over the natural realm and now his authority over the supernatural realm. The setting for this really one-sided battle 
is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a Gentile area predominantly. It is this region of the Gadarenes. And these two men literally opposed him. They didn't just come out to meet him and say, hi, welcome to the, you know, our side of the sea. They come out with opposition in their demeanor to stand against him, to oppose him. And, and they're described here as dangerously violent and supernaturally strong. No one can overpower them. No one can contain them. They're, they're like, the, they're like the strength of animals. Contained in human beings. They're like territorial hyenas. And the lion of Judah has just shown up. Threatening them. And what they say to him is really interesting. They basically are saying, we have nothing in common. What are you doing here? Leave us alone. What is this? What is, what is your business here? Son of God. Do you notice that? They refer to him the same title that the devil used in the wilderness temptations. When they call him the son of God, they are admitting defeat on the front end of this battle. They are acknowledging from the very get-go, we are defeated. And since you're going to cast us out, since we're going to lose, how about this as an option? Why pigs? Well, I think there's several reasons we could speculate why they wanted to go into the pigs. The first reason is the pigs would be better than going into the abyss. In the millennial kingdom, when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom on earth and reign over the world from Jerusalem, all of the demons and all and Satan will be cast into the pit, the abyss, and, uh, and it'll be sealed and a great door will be shut over it. And that's where they're headed. And they know that's where they're headed. And they think Jesus has come here. Has he come here perhaps to send this group into the abyss now? Well, pigs would be better than the abyss. Second reason they ask for the pigs is that apparently if you're a demon, you don't want to be disembodied. You don't want to be outside the body of something where you're just aimlessly drifting around. They either want to possess humans or apparently, next best, let's possess animals. By the way, this is the only time in the entire Bible that an animal is possessed by a demon. This is so bizarre. Everything about this is bizarre. There's a third reason they, they, they want to choose the pigs because they want to get away from Jesus. And they know that he will not come near pigs. Pigs are unclean to Jews. They can't raise them, they can't touch them, they can't be near them, and they can't eat them. They're unclean animals, and Jesus is a law-abiding Jew, and he's not going to come near those pigs. And so they think this is a safe place for us to go for now. With one word, Jesus sends them. One word, go! How much power is this? How much authority is this? Mark tells us there were about 2,000 pigs. We can deduce that there were perhaps 2,000 demons. Jesus, with a word, commands 2,000 demons to go now into those pigs, and they instantly go. He doesn't have to pray about it. He doesn't have to call on angels to help him. He doesn't have to use incantations and, and plead and go on and on and on. He doesn't have to ask his father. He just simply gives the command and 2,000 demons up and leave these two individuals. 
And then the pigs lose their minds. The pigs drown themselves. The pigs destroy themselves for the enemy of God's creation comes to steal, kill and destroy. And this is really bizarre because pigs are excellent swimmers. They are. They're amazing swimmers. And these pigs all drown in in an act of self-destruction. And the demons end up disembodied after all. Jesus doesn't accommodate them when he says go. He knows what's going to happen. They don't. They end up disembodied. What they didn't want. The herdsmen, this is a huge herd. This is probably a community herd. The herdsmen protecting their own skin and terrified run to the city. It's about six miles away. They get the entire village to come out and have a meeting with Jesus. Again, this is not a meet and greet. This is an opposition. And I want you to picture this scene. The whole city shows up there on that hillside and they look over into the Sea of Galilee and there are 2,000 pigs floating dead in the water. And they look at Jesus and they think this is some kind of magic sorcerer, some kind of destructive magician, and we're terrified of him. And Luke tells us that out of fear, they beg Jesus to leave their region. After all, he's wrecked their pig business. He's decimated their local economy. I found this humorous a a bit, especially in our day and age of elevating animals above people. The Jewish Christian reader of this would have found it very humorous that all of the pigs drowned. (laughs) And that Jesus has no issue with that. But that's beside the point. The point is... All of these demons obeyed the one word of Jesus. He did not need two words. He did not need three words. There's simply one lesson here for us. If demons obey, how much more should we? He didn't die for demons. He didn't come to redeem demons. They're unredeemable. They have no option. They have no plan of salvation. But they're in the presence of authority and they know it. They're in the presence of the son of God. And they know who he is and they know their outcome. And he says, go and they go. And he says, go to us and we stay. We who are made in his image, we are his sons and daughters. We who belong to him by faith, we who have been purchased at the cross, we who do not belong to ourselves. If demons obey, how much more should we obey? Third great demonstration of authority comes in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Getting into a boat, you know, they asked him to leave, so he did. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. That's Capernaum. The city there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, headquarters for his ministry. He would stay there in Peter's home. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. This is the story of the ones actually dropped down through the roof. Matthew doesn't find that important to tell us. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. The friends and the paralytic. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. 
And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Authority over the natural realm. Authority over the supernatural realm. And now authority over the spiritual realm. Or the moral realm. And there are no other realms. We have just covered all of creation. As Jesus demonstrates, he is authority over all. But this is the best of all, folks. This is the heart of his mission. This is the greatest display of power and authority of all three. Matthew saves the best for last. And the best is not that a lame man could walk. The best is that a sinner was forgiven. You see, the first one was just an issue of creation groaning. And the second one were created beings, demons. But this one relates to God. This one relates to their debt to God. That they are debtors to the Almighty, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. And Jesus comes with the authority to forgive sins on behalf of the Father. Here is the heart of the mission. Four friends, we learn from another gospel, bring this lame man on a stretcher to Jesus. The crowds are so great, they tore apart the roof. They lowered him from the roof, set him right in front of Jesus as he's teaching a house packed with people. Jesus sees their faith and he shocks everyone in the room. He does the totally unexpected. They'd seen him do miracles before. They'd seen healings before. They were expecting that. He throws them a curveball for the ages. He says to the lame man, cheer up, son. I love this. Cheer up, child. Your sins are forgiven. Here and now. Not your sins were forgiven before you came in. Not your sins will be forgiven someday. I am telling you right here and now. Your sins are forgiven. I just forgave them. Now these scribes. These legal experts. These these seminary professors. Who are listening to Jesus. Trying to find him. Catch him in something so that they can accuse him. They hear this and they know that only God has the authority to forgive sins. That all sin is against God. And so he alone can forgive them. And they instantly say blasphemy. This man speaks wrong of God. This man's claiming to be God. This is blasphemy. Now that is a charge by the way that came with a death penalty. This would be the charge they would want to use eventually to have him crucified. It's also very ironic, isn't it? They're accusing the Son of God of blasphemy and their accusation is itself. What? Blasphemy. This is also the first opposition by religious leaders in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the very first and it will certainly grow. They accuse him of blasphemy. He basically uses the healing of this man's paralysis to prove a greater point. Right. He's he knows their thoughts. Verse four, he sees into their heart. It's evil. It's malice because they want to kill him. That's why they're throwing out this charge. 
They want him dead. They want him gone. And so he's going to say, basically, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, it's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can see that being done. You can't see that. You can't prove that. That's spiritual. That's invisible. So which is easier, this or this? And obviously this is easier. So to prove to you that I can do this, I'm going to do this other thing now. And he says, get up and, and, and walk and go home. Look at that. He gives him three rapid fire commands. Number one, get up. Number two, pick up your bed. Number three, go home. And then look at verse seven. Instant compliance. Instant obedience. Instant submission. He got up and he went home. The crowd saw this. They were awestruck. They were overwhelmed. They glorified God who had given such authority. There's your theme. Authority to men. There are two lessons here for us that we want to consider. Lesson number one. Spiritual healing matters more than physical healing. Spiritual healing is the priority. The other is a means to an end. The other is secondary. Jesus addresses the man's more significant problem first. And then deals with his other problem. This is so important that we see. So important that we understand in this fallen world, in our fallen bodies, all of us headed to death apart from the rapture. That what matters more than anything is spiritual healing. This is not a story about a paralytic being healed. This is a story about a sinner being forgiven. That is the emphasis here. That is the shock here. That is the expression of authority. And that is our greatest need. Whatever your physical needs are right now. Whatever your your difficulties are right now. Whatever your challenges are right now. They do not compare to our need for forgiveness. See, if I'm paralyzed, I just simply can't walk. But if I'm not forgiven, I'm under the wrath of God. I am, I'm, I'm under his judgment and I'm doomed for damnation forever and ever. Which will make not being able to walk look like a, you know, a day in the park, the best day of your life. The issue is our sin debt. The issue is we owe God for our transgressions. So spiritual healing always matters more than physical. The second lesson we have here, and I hope you've already seen it, is this man, this unnamed man, becomes for us a model of discipleship. He is a model. Look at it. Number one, go to Jesus in faith. Check. Number two, have your sins forgiven. Check. Number three, then do what Jesus says. And do what Jesus commands. I go to Jesus, helpless and hopeless in faith. Jesus forgives my sin sovereignly and authoritatively. Now do what he says. He said to get up and go home, so I'm going to get up and go home. I would imagine everything in his being would want to stay, would want to talk about it, would want to, would want to rejoice with people, would want to hang around for a while, would want to celebrate. I mean, everything naturally, humanly speaking, would say, let's stay here. But Jesus doesn't want him to stay here. And he doesn't debate and he doesn't argue. And he goes, but what about, I got an opportunity here to do this or that. No, it doesn't matter. He got up, he went home. If he has forgiven us, shouldn't we obey him? I mean, it's so simple, isn't it? It's so basic. This is authority leading to discipleship. If we are forgiven, then obey. Then follow. Then submit. Unlimited authority over the natural, the supernatural, and the spiritual realms. 
over creation demons and sin itself. And watch this. What is the end result of these three miracles? The end result is first a calm creation. Second, hindered demons. And third, a lame man is made whole and is forgiven. Hello, a glimpse into the future messianic kingdom. Creation calm. Demons hindered. And people are whole and forgiven. And the Jews made right with God. Here the king offering the kingdom is showing his people what it's going to be like when he comes. Glory, right? This is our hope. This is why we long for the rapture and the tribulation and the return of Christ. So that the world will be as it was meant to be. Without demons running around destroying everything. Without storms terrifying us. And without diseases paralyzing us. And without sin being an issue. This is what we have to look forward to as disciples of Christ. Who have already gained our entrance into the future kingdom. I want to close with uh, three sweet gospel reminders. The calming of the storm looks forward to those three hours of darkness on the cross when Jesus, through his bloody death, would say, if you will, to the wrath of God, hush, be still. Jesus there by his death would still the wrath of God on our behalf for everyone who would ever believe in him. His casting out demons looks ahead to the cross where he disarmed the prince, the powers and principalities, where he disarmed the demons, where he made a public spectacle of them and he crushed the head of the serpent. The cross is where he cast out Satan. The cross is where he defeated our enemy. Where he broke his grip on all of the elect for all time. So that Satan one day would be forced to let us go to our new master. And then his forgiving of sin. As the son of man and the son of God looks ahead to where he obviously paid the penalty for our sins. Where he took the punishment for our sins. Where he bore the wrath of God in our place. So that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is the cross where God accomplished the very basis of the forgiveness of sins. Allowing a holy God to pardon wretched sinners like us. The storm and these demons and and this Declaration of forgiveness. All are looking forward to where the story is going. To where Matthew is going. To a suffering Messiah. Who would be crucified, dead, buried and raised from the dead. It is the unlimited authority then of this Christ. That calls us too to be awestruck. Right? It calls us to glorify God. By a complete surrender to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would ask that by your amazing grace that this would take place in our hearts and lives, in every heart and life in this place. 
Lord, we would pray that there would be complete surrender, complete submission. The Christian life cannot be lived any other way. We're just fooling ourselves if we think we can. I pray, Lord, that you would um, do your work in our midst and may either now or in the future, every single soul in this place be able to sing this song we're about to sing from the heart and with understanding. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.